This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. to introduce our first storyteller who came to us kind of like a gift from the ether through an email. He sent us an email and said, I'd love to tell this story about my mom. And it happened that it fit in with our theme tonight, which is about see me as I want to be seen stories about gender. So um, this guy is a writer, a drag queen, also an attorney. And he just won a case where he granted Asylum to a 13-year-old Guatemalan kid, pro bono, good deed for, yeah. the, for the lifetime. Yeah. I didn't know and that part. FYI, he is single. I'm just saying, just wanted to let y'all know, please welcome to the stage, Eddie Jen. Eddie Jen. Uh. So I was six years old when my parents left me to come to the United States. And I didn't see them again until uh, when I was nine. Uh, that was about three years. And I don't remember missing them. Uh, <laughs> but I do remember seeing my mom at JFK Airport. And she was crouched down, and she had her arms spread out. And I ran into her arms, and I just started sobbing. I burst into tears. And that was a really, really happy and magical night. And then the next morning, I was taking, I guess, my first shower here in the United States. And my mom just snapped at me. And, um, and you know, keep in mind, I hadn't seen her you know, for three years. This person was a stranger to me. And it shocked me how quickly, you know, she burst into anger. And um, I was left with the impression, my mom has, you know, anger issues. Uh, fast forward uh, 20-some years, and she calls me. Uh, this happened a, a few years ago. And she calls me, and she's crying, and she's sobbing, like, really hard. She can't catch her breath. And it's a Sunday. Uh, it was a Sunday because Sundays is when my dad goes to the Indian casinos. And my mom, she's like crying. She's like, Eddie, when your dad comes home, I'm going to stab him. But I'm not just going to stab him once or twice. I'm going to stab him 10 times. I'm going to stab him 100 times. A thousand times. I hate him so much. My mom is also very dramatic. Um, <laughs> she's not O.J. Simpson. She's very dramatic. And um, my parents did not have the, you know, the greatest marriage. It wasn't a broken family, but it was just an unhappy family, which made it very interesting uh, when she started uh, really getting on my case about getting married a few years ago. And... Um, and she came up with this idea that if I wasn't getting married here in the States, I should go find a wife in China. 
And um, and one time we were talking, and she said, "Eddie, do you know how people see you? Do you know your your worth?" And you know, growing up Chinese in America, my parents never told me they were proud of me. It's just not something that was done. So it was like. I felt like we were having a very joy luck club moment, you know. It's like I felt the tears welling up, and my mom held my hand and she looked me and I said, "Eddie, you will find a wife in China because you are a U.S. citizen." <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes like I get stoned, I smoke a little four twenty, and I crack myself up thinking about that line, you know. Um, I am going to find a wife in China because I'm a U.S. citizen.、Um, what would that courtship look like? You know, just just think about that. I I'd be walking down the streets in China and I see a Chinese girl I like, and I whip out my U.S. passport, <laughs> and then instantly her nipples would turn hard. And then, like later on, when we're getting intimate and you know for foreplay for dirty talk. I'd recite the Pledge of Allegiance, <laughs> and when it comes to the part where I recite with liberty and justice for all, her eyes roll to the back of her head, and she reaches orgasm without me having to touch her. <laughs> I've never brought a woman to orgasm, by the way. <laughs> Obviously, I've never had sex with a woman.、Um, And you know, this is the, my parents know I'm gay.、Um, my my mom has、uh, asked my cousins, and my dad has told me, you know, Eddie, it's not normal. You could change if you want to, but you're just too selfish. <laughs> but to their credit, you know, they've never like insisted on you know me stopping any activities or anything. We just don't talk about it.、Um, one time when they were here visiting me, and I live in the Castro, so it's like they know.、Um, <laughs> I said to Dad, "I'm like, should I just tell Mom, and so we could have this out and open?" He's like, "No, Eddie, she would jump off the Golden Gate Bridge." Like I said, she's very dramatic, and so. The fact that she knows I am gay makes me wonder: Why would you want me to get married to a Chinese woman and wreak this havoc upon someone else's life? You know.、Um, and we had another conversation, and she said to me, "Eddie, a Chinese woman doesn't need too much love. <laughs> just, just a little bit is enough. <laughs> a, a little bit. You could do it, can't you?" You could do it, just a little bit of love. And it's it's it really hard for me, as you know,、um, as a gay son, to hear that my mom hasn't been loved the way she wants to be loved.、Um, I feel like that's like the story of like a gay man and our moms, you know, going back to Jesus, you know.、Uh, <laughs> So it's it's such it's、uh, and and I have to like not think about it too much. I have to put aside these thoughts and put them in a box and put them on a shelf because if I think about that, it would just consume me.、Um, and、uh, when you grow up in a family where like it's not a happy family, you.、Uh, 
you learn. You have this inner buoy that you know you you're very good at keeping your spirits up and casting aside those unhappy thoughts. And and I I think I'm relatively happy in San Francisco. Um, it's my life has turned out okay. And I wanted to share some of this joy with my parents. I wanted to make especially my mom happy. I wanted to do all these things that we never did growing up. So last summer I decided. I, we should go to Disneyland. And um, it was decided, you know, 4th of July weekend, we would go to Disneyland. And the day before, I just started getting panic attacks. I, I felt like I had to get a Xanax prescription. Um, yeah, it was like, it was, yeah, if, you're, if your mom, like, wants to stab your dad a thousand times and <laughs> wants to go jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, you would drug yourself, too. And... But then I thought about, like, why I am the one paying for the hotels and the flights and the car rental and the Disneyland tickets and all the dinners and the meals. And now I have to drug myself, too, to, like, make it through the weekend. I thought, fuck that shit. I am going to drug them. <laughs> so we're at Disneyland. And we're get, we get on the choo-choo train that kind of takes us into the park. And I opened up a canister of um, gummies. <laughs> and I, I didn't specify that they were medicinal gummies, but they knew. It's like, it's like, would you like one? And they both took one. So my parents, they, they're, they're, they, they're game. You know, they wanted to have a good time. And I thought, okay, this is going to be great. We're going to be stoned going through Disneyland. We're going to have this fun that we never, we never went on vacations as, as a family, as a kid. It was 120 degrees last 4th of July. Oh, my God. And, um, and my dad, oh, he's like... I realized he's like this kid that never grew up, you know. He, my dad, mind you, he's been to Disneyland, and he's been. He wants. He's like, I want to go on the Star Wars ride. I want to go on a Star Wars ride, <laughs> and he just can't. There's no empathy. There's no like thinking. I never took my son to Disneyland. I never took my family out on vacations. And here's my grown son wanting to take me out, our family out on Disneyland. No, that's not what he thinks. He's just like, oh, Disneyland is no fun. This is boring. I want to go on Star Wars. And I, uh, trust me, I totally understand why my mom wants to stab him a thousand times. <laughs> and my mom, she just starts going, you know, my life is, is ruined, is, 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 is a complete failure because of your dad and how much I hate him. And, and did I mention it was like 120 degrees while all this was going on? And you know how like your biggest fear is turning into your mom? Well, that ship has sailed. Because <laughs> I was like, mom, ma, you want to stab dad a thousand times, 10,000 times? Go cut that bitch. Just stop saying it and just go cut that bitch. <laughs> I, sh I should also mention, um, my dad has a life insurance policy. And, <laughs> and I'm the beneficiary. But he is so cheap. He bought the cheapest life insurance policy. It doesn't cover natural deaths. So basically, he has to be like stabbed a th thousand times for me to collect. So I was like, Mom, 
go stab him, go cut that bitch up. But no, actually, you, you've lived in America for over 40-some years. You are a U.S. citizen. Use a fucking gun. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I actually didn't say all this stuff. I, I thought it. I was stoned. It was all in my mind. Um, and my parents were just so rigid and set in their ways. They're like in their 70s that they did didn't realize they were stoned. They would just went about their own way. But I knew they were stoned because they had the munchies. <laughs> and we were at the snack shop. And I just remember, like, it's just like I do a low-carb diet. So when I had my burger, I left all the buns out and stuff. And my dad just, oh, that, when he was dipping that white bread into the ranch dressing and the, the look on his face, you know, it's like, I was like, bitch, you're stoned. Um, but they didn't have that kind of, uh, that first time stoner uh, reaction where you get paranoid. And we didn't have that, that kind of laughter where, you know, you're just giggling and, and unstoppable when you're stoned. Um, I didn't have that family memory I wanted. <laughs> so next time we're doing acid. Coming into our life. Single. You know anyone? Um, our next storyteller is very brave. Um, I think this is kind of a kind of a coming out party or something like that. Anyway. Um so you responded to the to the Facebook post or to email? To I I, it was so through... I take a writing class with Matthew Clark Davidson and they um our next storyteller is a, a write, creative writing student at State and a writer. And they work in the bookstore. Yes. And so this is how we found our next storyteller. I, lo- I love because we have some storytellers on the show tonight that we've had before. And then it's always so fun to just get somebody new. Eddie's From- new. And our next storyteller is India Marie Chakraverty. <laughs> mom and best friend from small town are here which is lovely support so thanks for being brave come on up india so just a quick little disclaimer thank you for making it shorter my mom was asking where the step stool was <laughs> i am the shortest in my family <laughs> So, um, a little bit about me. Uh, yes, my name is India Marie Chakravarty. Yes, India, just like the country. My father was born in Kolkata, India, so I am half Bengali, and my mom was actually born and raised in the Bay Area, Oakland. Woohoo! So, um, I am the beautiful little combination of half white, half Indian. <laughs> Anyway, so as I said, I grew up in a small town called Ripon. Uh, probably only these people up front know who it is. Maybe one or two other of you, if you've heard of it. Uh, let's talk later. Anyways. <laughs> um, and the thing about Ripon is that it's 85% white, 14% Latinx. The only time I can ever proudly say I am part of the 1%. <laughs> 
uh, it also just goes to show that where I grew up was very conservative. And moving to San Francisco, I really got to um, explore who I am and get to know myself and just be able to express myself how I want to <laughs> show me as I want to be seen. Hey, all. <laughs> so this is going to be a story of chronologically of how I began to learn about myself. So when I was seven, I met my uh, best friend. Her name is Jessica. I happen to have three best friends named Jessica, by the way. So it's really quite easy. I go, Jessica, and I get three people turning around like, hey. <laughs> anyway, so um, when I met her, it was very random. In second grade, she happened to be right next to me. And I gave the – and just somehow I knew that this girl was going to be my best friend. I looked at her like this the entire time. And somehow we're still friends to this day. <laughs> Anyway, so as we grew up, she grew up, she is very extremely Catholic. And I, I, growing up in that family, you know, I went to her house all the time. I got to see all the crosses on the wall. I got to experience that family dynamic. It was absolutely wonderful. And I, that's something I am very grateful for, that I got to see that part. So now, see me as I want to be seen we get to the juicy stuff about gender. When I was 12 years old, I lopped off all of my hair and I went into the fearful tomboy stage. I never grew out of it. Anyways, so 12 years old, Jess and I, we went ice skating. And we had, and we took this great old picture. I had my arms wrapped around her, cheesing it up at the camera. Took this picture of the, one of those little, not Polaroid cameras, but you know, the types of cameras that you took the picture and then you had to take to Walgreens or whatever to get the pictures developed and you didn't know whether or not they were good, good or not until after you got the pictures. Yeah, it was that kind of camera. Did I just age myself? <laughs> Anyways, so we got this picture and it happened to be at a family gathering and Jess was showing off the pictures to her family and her cousin goes and she looks at the picture and she goes, Jess? Who's that boy in the picture with you? And then Jess goes, that's not a boy. That's my best friend, India. And she's a girl pointing at me, like throwing it in my face. And I'm just like, this was the very first time in which the, the concept of like, oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a girl. Okay something to process, something to think about, my little 12-year-old tomboy stage. The next time I was ever called a boy was actually with my mom. She probably remembers this story. So we were walking into Target, and there was a lady, and she was handing out um, little energy drinks. I don't know if you guys have heard of Sobe energy drinks. I don't even know if they're still around these days. It was a real big thing in the early 2000s. And I, I, again, my lopped off short hair. I remember when mom had taken, <laughs> when mom had taken me shopping and I insisted because I was a tomboy then and going into the boy section and buying cargo pants and I had big old baggy shirt. And this lady goes, oh, would you like a sample? Then says to my mom, oh, 
and your son can have one too. And I was just like, oh, I'm a real boy, you know, that kind of thing. And then my mom turns to me and she went, that is my daughter. And I'm just, I'll be, I'm being honest, mama. I was this big old balloon and I, you know, when it just kind of swirls out, goes, That's exactly what it felt like. Because then again, I was just like, oh, I guess I'm only a girl again. Anyways, as I got older, let's just say, long story short, high school sucked. I, whenever I would wear rainbows or anything like that, I was bullied a lot for being gay. Little did they know that they were right. <laughs> but I wasn't out or anything like that. The first time that it, it, it was in, when I was in high school was I, when I realized that, oh, hey, I actually may not be entirely straight because I had a brief attraction to a girl. And I'm an only child. I have, I'm my folks' entire world. And knowing that I'm their entire world and all of a sudden, oh, hey, your kid may be gay. You know, oftentimes what I think about is like, I am my folks' one chance of getting it right in this world. And look at me. I, I'm now like, I'm going to be a starving artist. Oh, no, I'm going to be gay. Like, you know, that kind of thing as a high schooler. But then I just think to myself, this is what's getting me through is knowing that I am my folks' only shot and that, you know, I'm all that they got, and I'm very grateful for that. So to continue on the story, past high school, because as I said, high school sucks, I go into college, and this is your time to learn everything about yourself. This is where I then talk about how I meet, met, still meeting, I guess, every so often, my wonderful boyfriend, who, uh, it, as if now, this month, it's been officially three years with him. I guess I'll claim him. Anyways, so when I first met my boyfriend, he was with someone else. No, I did not steal him. She left him. I jumped on that. Anyways, <laughs> so I saw him across the room, and I was just like, damn, he's hot. <laughs> but then, long story short, he had a roommate who I was friends with. That's another story. And I, I asked this friend, is he a boy or a girl? And this is where I hate my ignorance. And she said, he's a boy. He's trans. And he was the one who inspired me to write the novel that is now my thesis. And because of him, I, I now am writing this amazing novel, which I did not mean to actually come to life. So let's just say after his ex left him, I sent him a message over Facebook saying, hey, I'm writing this novel about an interracial Indian woman falling in love with a trans man. Could I ask you stuff? And he's just like, oh, yeah, sure. Here's my number. And I'm just like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. 
And the best thing was about him is that while I would be asking him all these questions about gender and identity and all of these things, he'd be like, okay, I'm tired of talking about myself. Let's talk about you. I'm like, oh, you want to talk about me? You want to talk about me? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, little, little giggly thing going on there. And one day he had asked me to just hang out at the mall, that kind of thing. And he asked me, what's your identity? I went, I'm straight. He turns to me, looks me dead in the eye and goes, bullshit. And I went, shh, how'd you know? No one's supposed to know this, that kind of thing. So continue on dating, getting to know each other, that kind of thing. Him calling me out in that way led me to realize that I don't have to, I don't have to hide who I am. Not anymore. I don't have to hide it from myself. I don't have to hide it from the world. The first person I came out to, besides him, because obviously he saw through my bullshit, was my mom. She took it wonderfully. And then I came out how I started off the story to my best friend, Jess. Remember, she's extremely Catholic. And she told me that if I were to ever marry someone out of the binary, that she would not attend my wedding. And I, my heart broke. My heart shattered. At this point, we had been best friends for 14 years. And she was going to be my maid of honor. She was going to be all of these things in my life. And just knowing that she wouldn't be at my wedding, at, to the person that I'm going to love for the rest of my life, destroyed me. Coming out to my other best friend, Jessica, who is in the audience, she was just like, oh, awesome. I knew it. How come everyone knew but me? <laughs> so to continue on, later on, having, as I said, realizing I didn't have to hide, I also realized I wasn't entirely cisgender, not entirely a woman. I can be a man, and I can be in between. I can go, and that's exactly how I feel. I'm she, they, he. I literally just got a shirt the other day that says, he, she, they, it's all okay. And I'm just like, it's perfect. It describes me. And I'll probably be wearing that shirt at Pride. So I came out over Snapchat saying that I'm gender fluid. And I got a long message from Jessica saying, this is the Catholic Jessica, saying that she didn't understand. It was, and she wasn't saying that she wanted to understand, but she still continued to want to be in my life even though she didn't understand. So let's just say there's been a lot of talk. A few months ago, we went and we got pedicures. And we were talking about weddings and everything like that. And so I decided to, on the slide, kind of slip in something, saying, like, oh, hey, you know, Nate and I were thinking about getting married. Nate's my boyfriend. What color do you think you'd like to wear at our wedding? And she says, I think I'd look good in a bright teal. Thank you.
our next storyteller is somebody that we've had at so many Portslight shows over the years. Um, he, how many? How many? I don't know. I mean, can you remember you know, Kelly? How many? Maybe ten. More, more than that. Um, he he has had so many great somebody, jobs. Somebody came tonight and is specifically here because. Um, Kelly, tell. I mean, when Kelly first told the story, he was a tow truck driver. He's been a locksmith. A locksmith. He drove the um roll. He picked the Rolling, Rolling Stones, Stones up, up on at a the tarmac at Oakland Airport. School bus once. driver. Um, yeah, so many great stories. And now he's no, a bar, bar train, train operator. operator. Choo choo, all aboard. Um, one of I, our all-time favorite yeah. storytellers, Kelly, Kelly Beardsley. Hey, you guys, how's it going? <laughs> um, so my story, first off, I never come out. You know, everyone at my work knows about me. Well, most of my friends are there. But when I'm in front of strangers, I never say, like, hey, I'm a trans dude. What's up? So, <laughs> but um, I came out, well, I transitioned, God, it's been about 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And um. You know, it's like when you transition, I mean, it's not like you're just like, oh, I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to like go to the doctor and they're going to like change everything and boom, you know, there's all these steps that go into it. And um, of course, I came out at work and they were fine. It was like, whatever, you know, it's a Bay Area. (laughs) I mean, my boss, the one of the super, there's a gazillion people that work at BART. That's why everything's fucked up because there's just a gazillion <laughs> fucking people there and everyone's just bumping into each other and I picked one boss. We have like 150 of them and I'm like, and she was like this butch dyke and I'm like, hey, you know, so I'm transitioning and she's an older Latino butch from like, she doesn't even call herself butch. She's just like an older Latino lesbian and um for the who grew up in the mission and she's like oh that's cool man so you're like you're gonna start being like more like feminine and shit and i was like no dude i'm the fucking transition from i guess from a butch to a dude you know <laughs> and she was like oh that's cool that's cool all right and that was pretty much it you know and then um and then i told my mom and my mom is like, she, first off, my mom is a closeted lesbian and she'll tell me this. She just doesn't want anyone to know because she doesn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. And so I tell my mom, and the first thing my mom says is, um, you guys know Cher's son, um, Chaz. My mom is a freaking huge ass Cher fan. I mean, when I was a kid, I was born in 72. When I was a kid, my mom used to go to the Sonny and Cher show all the time. We grew up in Los Angeles. Like, constantly. Her and my dad would always go to the Sonny and Cher show. So, huge Cher fan. So, my mom, the first thing... And, in fact, when I came out to her being gay, my mom was like, well, you know, Cher is doing a great job with chastity. <laughs> and chastity was, like, a straight-up, like, fat butch. And that's how I was, you know? And so, my mom was like... You know, I'd really prefer you like looked more like Shane from the L Word. This is years later, like Shane from the L Word, but it's okay. And I'm like, thanks. So like, so she's like, when I came out to her, she's like, well, if Cher can deal with chastity becoming Chaz, I can do it. Like all dramatic. And I'm like, yeah, I guess, you know, like Cher's got a bazillion dollars. I think she can deal with anything, but you know, and, <laughs> but I know that Cher, and it was when, 
and someone who's telling a story tonight reminded me that Cher actually had a real fucking problem with Chad's transitioning. Well, you know, and I and I can't. I think me and my mom talked about that later, but but you know, she's cool. My mom's cool. I think she feels more comfortable calling me her son than her like fat butch daughter. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that's like she's cool with that. So so then it's like it got to the point. You know, in 2010, like, and this is the way I felt when I transitioned. I felt like, like at times, like I was an imposter or something, you know, or like, like I was living this double life and I was always going to get found out, you know? And so I was like, and and I started to stress out when I busted out my ID, you know? And I was like, God damn, this fucking W. I just got to put a little M on that, you know? And so I'd gone, I was like, I'm going to start with the paperwork. And so I go to the social, you know, I'm like, I'm going to start with social security card. So I, there was back in, this is like in the mid 2000s. I think it was like 2008 or something. So everyone was on like these groups, these like Yahoo groups. And everyone on the Yahoo groups were like, go to the freaking social security office in Chinatown in San Francisco. They give zero fucks and we'll just send you right through. And I was like, okay. So I go there and this woman totally was all, I went to the guy with my paperwork and I'm like, hey, I'm here to, and I hand him the paperwork and he immediately called this woman over and I, they sent me to another window and boom, it was done. She didn't even cross that bad an eye. And I was like, oh, have you done this before? She didn't even look up at me. She was just like, mm-hmm. And I was like, cool. So that was easy. Passport, easy. I had to renew it anyways. That was in 2010. So like, that's when it was need to be renewed. So I just sent in the paperwork and I put an M instead of a W. Didn't even have to send in paperwork. Boom. I got the I was like, oh, cool, you know? And then the driver's license, I was nervous about. There's something about going into the DMV and getting a number and waiting for like 45 minutes, an hour and a half to be denied. <laughs> it's stressful, you know? And to explain to someone like, hey, this is this thing I got to do. I hope you're cool with it. So, you know, and so the paperwork just sat in my glove box of my car for like over a year, like a year and a half probably. And then... My aunt passed away. I can't remember. It might have been 2011-ish. And she lived in Los Angeles. And so I'm, like, driving down to L.A. to go see her. And it was, like, a Tuesday. So, I'm like, I think the, the service was on Thursday. So I'm, like, I'm going to go down early. And I'm driving down to L.A. It's, like, 9 o'clock in the morning. I left. So I get down about 1130-ish. I'm, like, you know what? I bet there's a, a DMV somewhere off the 5. And I bet it's not super intense, like in the Bay Area. And so I get on my my smartphone. You don't have a flip phone anymore. I get on my phone. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, there's a DMV in Colinga, California. Perfect. You know, NapQuest, that shit. I'm like, I can be there in 38 minutes. So I'm cruising along, and then you go past all the cows on the left, smell it you can smell Kalinga I'm like there it is I'm almost there and I get off the exit and I'm going and I get to this the DMV and it's this little tiny like you guys down with Kalinga downtown Kalinga it's this little downtown area and DMV is basically a storefront straight up I mean like I'm like there it is I go in there it's like it's a storefront. It looks like a it looks kind of like a check cashing place without the bulletproof glass, basically. <laughs> That's basically what it looks like. It's so small. And there was these two Latino dudes 
speaking to this woman. They were speaking in Spanish. And then there was another woman and she was like sitting in the back and she came up and I was like, I had my paper. It's all wrinkled and shit. I'm like trying to spread it out on the, the counter. And she's like, hey, can I help you? And I was like, yeah, I'm here to um, change my license straight up. I'm like, I'm here to change my license from woman to man. That's, that's how I started it. I don't even think I said good morning. You know what I mean? In Kalinga, California. She's like, all right. 2011. You know, she's like, all right, let's do this. And she's like, okay, let me see what you got. And she goes, you know what? Do you want to come in the back? And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, DMV. And she's like, I'm going to get some coffee in this. And I was like, okay. And so we go in the back. I mean, you could see it. It's like these like two offices in the back. And then there's a then there's a place where the people stand and then the counter, you know? So like we go in the back and we sit down and she's like pouring coffee and she's like looking at my paperwork and she's like, well, why is there a W on your license? And I was like, oh, I don't know. It was like a medical condition. <laughs> DNA was fucked up. It was the early 70s, you know. I don't know. Like totally. I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, oh, oh, okay. And she's going, and she's like, okay. And I had like my, my like, note from the doctor which she didn't even look at you know and she's like well well and then she's like well sweetie you filled out the wrong form and i had a doctor fill out the form i'm like fuck you know i gotta go get another form i gotta go back to the doctor i'm probably never gonna do this again i'm just gonna i'm just gonna type an m and tape it on my id (laughs) that's it (laughs) i was like planning this I'm, i'm like that's what i'll do so then it's like she's like i know here's what we'll do I, since you had your doctor fill this out, that's a medical. I'm just going to white out the numbers for the form and put the right numbers in. I'm like, okay. <laughs> that sounds like a plan to me. I was like, so that means I get to get this done today. And she goes, oh, yeah, you'll get this done today. You know? And I was like, okay, cool. So um, she gets all that. And then we're going through it. And my heart's kind of beating fast, but not really. Because I'm like, either she's down with this or she really is never – seen anything like this before and just doesn't know what to make of it but either way it's going smoothly you know i'm like that's cool so then she gets everything and everything done she goes okay all the paperwork's done she goes now you just have to get a new picture taken and pay five dollars and she's like we only take cash i'm like i've got five dollars i go i've got twenty dollars and she's like no no it's only five i'm like okay so then we go out and we take my picture and then, you know, they take the picture. And then she, in fact, she let me take two or three pictures. She was really cool about it. She wasn't like, that's it. You know, you're like, oh. She's like, nope. Let's get a smile. You want to, you know, comb your hair or anything? I'm like, no, nah, I'm cool. I'll take the hat off because you can't wear a hat. You know? And then um, she get, and then, you know, with the DMV, they give you that paper with, and it's your license. And then they're like, in like, whatever, six weeks, you'll get your new license. And it had the M on it and everything. And she's like, okay, then make sure the dress is right. I'm like, okay, the dress is right. There's the M instead of the W. Awesome. Okay. Okay. And I'm like, okay, it looks good. And she goes, okay, now your license, or she goes, what did she say? She goes, your ID is now going to match who you are. And I was like, all right, cool. All right. That's it. Thank you guys. Please welcome Nick Summerfield. Nick Summerfield, everybody. We're at the 
we're at the halfway point, so we're just going to do a little more of a round of applause for Nick Somerville. Okay, but if you told me there would be an accompanist, I would have prepared a song. Anyway, um, true story. Uh, so, uh, so I grew up in Montana, which is enough of a starting place uh, for this story. But as much as I grew up in Montana, I also grew up in the theater, which was a saving grace in a lot of ways. Because a lot of things that I would have had to go through much older as a kid from Montana, I got to kind of skip ahead by being a theater kid. For example, I remember being about seven years old, and one of my mom's best friends was named Robert. And Robert and Shane were like uncles to me. They were my mom's best friends, and I loved them so much. And at one point, I remember asking my mom, like, well, Robert, does Robert have, like, a girlfriend? Does Robert have a husband? Or, I mean, a wife? Uh, and my mom was like, no, Robert and Shane are together. Now, I was raised Catholic, and my mom said this very casually, but as a seven-year-old, I was like, whoa, this is a lot to deal with. Um, I've been told that gay equals bad, equals not good things, but here's Robert and Shane, who are people I love and are wonderful, caring individuals, so I guess, yeah, so I guess gay people are okay, cool, I'm seven, down, great. Many people I know went through this much later in Montana and with a lot more turmoil. But as a seven-year-old, I was like, thought gay was bad. Actually, it's okay. Cool. Got it. So a lot of things were much easier growing up in the theater. However, growing up in the theater, there's a lot of binary. There's a lot of strong gendered norms. This is how a girl looks. This is how a boy looks. Blah, 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 blah. Um... And all of that seeped in in its own way. But when I was about 15 years old, I did my first Shakespeare play. Now, luckily enough, I had gone to Montana Shakespeare in the parks for years. I had loved Shakespeare for years. And I did my first Shakespeare play. But as is common in community theater, there were a lot of girls that showed up to audition and some boys. So, of course, uh, a lot of girls ended up playing parts that were traditionally written for boys, especially in Shakespeare, because in Shakespeare's day, it was all boys. So you had a lot of boys and no girls and how, how times have changed. Um, and so I ended up playing uh, a watchman, one of the characters in uh, Much Ado About Nothing that discovers the plot of the Don John and blah, blah, blah. Much Ado About Nothing. Um, so I ended up playing this character and I wore a security guard uniform and I ate Krispy Kreme donuts at every show um, and thought nothing of it. And the next year, I did Julius Caesar. Now, this was an extreme of the too many girls and not enough boys because 40 girls showed up to audition for Julius Caesar and three boys. And I remember the director coming on stage at the end of the second day of auditions and going... New concept, Amazon women. Every role that was for a man is for a woman. Every role that was for a woman is for a man. This is Montana. Pretty edgy stuff. 
So here I am in sandals and like a toga thing and a broadsword feeling like a badass. Playing Casca and Julius Caesar, I got to be the first to stab Caesar. It was very exciting. And once again, didn't think much of it. Mostly just got to do Shakespeare, got to be a badass. Awesome. But this continued. I kept playing boys in Shakespeare because more boy roles and etc, etc. And I had always been a tomboy. I was a proud tomboy. I lived in jeans and a t-shirt. Not a lot has changed. Um, And so I was happy. I was happy to play the, you know, watchman. I was happy to play the stabber. I was happy to play all of this. Um, And I didn't think much of it. And even my first professional show in California, I was doing a production of Much Ado About Nothing, and I was playing Lysander because it was an all-female production, and so every male role was played by a woman. And I was like, great, no problem. I got this. I've been playing boys in Shakespeare for a while. And eventually, I did end up playing a female in Shakespeare, but let's be real, it was more of a drag queen. I had a hat, I had the heels, there was lots of makeup, I was fabulous. (laughs) But it was weird because I didn't, realize that I was more comfortable doing that. That I was actually more comfortable playing the boy in Shakespeare. And I kept going back to Shakespeare and I loved to do Shakespeare and I loved the text, but I also was so comfortable on stage. I was so comfortable playing these characters. And then years later, many Shakespeare plays later, eventually I started to realize that I was never comfortable playing the girl. Didn't matter if it was Shakespeare, didn't matter if it was something else. I was never really comfortable playing the girl. That was always more of the character. It was drag. When I was playing the girl, I was the character. I was the drag queen. When I was doing these warriors in Shakespeare, when I was playing a guard, when I was playing a lover, I was more myself. I was more comfortable than I was in my everyday life playing a girl. Fast forward to many, through many Uh, Shakespeare productions, I remember doing Love's Labor's Lost, and I was playing, unsurprisingly, uh, a boy in that show. And there was a woman who was playing a boy who, after the show, would get out of the costume and put on makeup and kind of doll up. And I remember thinking, what are you doing? Gosh, that seems so much worse. Like, I'd rather just stay in what I'm wearing. Oh... And eventually I came out and, well, first I changed my name and then I came out and one of the greatest auditions I've ever had, one of the most powerful experiences I have ever had was I had just changed my name. I hadn't even come out really, maybe a couple people, but I'd changed my name. I'd started going by a name that meant so much more to me and I felt at home with and I went to an audition And the casting director had met me before and introduced me. And I was like, actually, wait, it's Nick. And she said, oh, all right, it's Nick. 
great. And you'll be doing a monologue for us. And I was like, yeah. And I did a monologue I had done plenty of times before. But it was different because for the first time I wasn't playing a part, playing a part. I was me and I was playing, doing a monologue, playing a role, but there was no extra layer there. It was just me. And I finished the monologue and the casting director was like, wow. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) wow. And that was the moment that I realized that I was done playing that part. And I was ready to be me. Thanks. Welcome to the stage. You can't miss her. Juliana Delgado Lopera. Yay. I just realized that this is like a gay recruitment. Everybody's gay. I was standing there in the green room. I was like, are we all gay? Is that what's happening? My mom wanted to be a nun. I should just end there and leave. My mom wanted to be a nun. And because that didn't happen, she ran her house like a convent uh, where she was the Madre Superiora. So I'm Colombian. I was raised in Bogota, Colombia. Hey. So everywhere you looked, Jesus was staring down at you. You wanted to pee? There's a crucifix. You wanted to eat? There's the 12 apostles in front of you. So I grew up inside a household that was very rigid. There was a lot of discipline. There were systems for everything and to-do lists everywhere. My mom loves to-do lists and crossing things out. It feels good, right? Um, So there was a way that we should play with our toys. There was a time where we should go eat. There was a time where we should come home. Um, And this was Bogota, Colombia in the 90s. I also went to a Catholic school with nuns that lived inside the school. Um, I went to church probably three times a week, and we wore a uniform that was orange, and I had a green sweater. So, you know, we didn't have men pissing on us, but we did have the nuns pissing on us, which was uh, fun, Um, marking territory. So I grew up in a very disciplined, very strict household. Um, But after my school, I would come home to my grandmother's house. So the buzz would drop me off. I would run up the stairs. I would ring the doorbell. My grandma would come. My grandma was a short, fat woman. And I would look at her. She would be like, la novela. And I would be like, la novela. So we would run into the room. She would walk into the room. She would sit in the rocking chair. And together, I would turn on the TV. You know those old-ass TVs that you had to go like that? I'm a kid from the 90s, but I had to do that. So she would be sitting on her rocking chair, and I would be there. And together, we would sing the opening credits of Dos Mujeres, Un Camino, which is two women, one row, and she knows it. Hey, girl. (laughs) And it goes something like this. Dos Mujeres, Un Camino. 
mismo amor. And every day we would do this. Um, so every single day she would let me do this. And then we would reenact different parts of the novela. And so my grandmother was a seamstress and she cooked for a living. And so there were pieces of textile all around her house. And so while we were, you know, reenacting pieces from the novela, I would put on things, I would run around her house. And so it was anarchy to me, girl. I was coming from looking at Jesus every single day, you know? And so like inside her house, it did feel like anarchy. I also remember creating haunted houses uh, where ketchup was the number one thing that we were using. Um, there was ketchup all around her house. So she really let me kind of like run wild with my imagination. Um, so after the novelas, you know, when she was tired, she was being, she'd been sewing. So I would sit behind her and she would pay me 25 cents to pop the blackheads from her back. <laughs> it got real intimate. I love my grandmother. So I would sit behind her. She was really fat. She had a big, big back and I loved her. And I would be there just like squeezing all the puzz, being like, that's one, that's two, that's three. And then when I would get bored, I would be like, can I draw on your back? She'd be like, yes, baby, here's a Sharpie. And so I would sit behind her, and my imagination, my imagination would run wild. Mind you, we had just been watching telenovelas for three hours. So I would sit there, and I would draw zombies, and I would draw houses, and her entire body would be covered with all my tattoos, to the point that, this is an aside, um, one time she had to go to the doctor, and I had just been drawing on her back, and my mom came back, and she's like, what the fuck are you doing to your grandmother, huh? My mom didn't know any of this was happening. You know, she dropped us off and she was like, remember, they have to do their homework. They have to eat. They have to do this at a certain time. And grandma was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I would leave my grandmother's house and I would carry the anarchy inside me, okay? This was the first, yeah, yeah, clap to that girl, clap to that because it's real. Um, this was the first time that I felt seen. It had nothing to do with language. It was more the fact that there was compassion that I was able to just run free and do whatever the fuck I wanted. She was like, you want to dress as a man? You want to dress as a, as, a, as a sheep? You want to dress as a giraffe? Baby, here it is. Here's a textile. Do whatever you want. And so that I carried inside me. So I, as I was growing up, you know, and I was coming to my grandma all the time, eventually I would, got, I, would, I would get to my house and I would lock my door when I was 11 or 12 years old. I remember this. And I would bring in those scenes from the telenovelas because I was carrying inside me, right? My mom was doing something else. Jesus was everywhere. There was this rigidity. But I would lock that door. I would open the closet. There were these posters of some bands. I don't want to say the names because you probably haven't heard of them. But it was called Salserín con mucho swing, which is a... Just think of the Backstreet Boys, but they sing salsa, okay? <laughs> I am so sad that I'm such a stereotype, but it's true. And so... Salsa Rinco Mucho Swing was there, and so I would have all these romances with the posters. You know, so I would reenact everything that I had seen in the telenovelas. I would make out with the posters. I faked three boyfriends. There were imaginary boyfriends that would come to life the moment I locked that door. I had three boyfriends that would just come to life and be like, Mi amor. Would you marry me? And I was like, yeah, papito, right here. I had three boyfriends. I wrote myself love letters. I took those love letters to school. And I was like, see, I got a boyfriend. I got a boyfriend. I got a boyfriend. Eventually, my friends in school were like, okay, want to see your boyfriend? I was like, all right, all right. 
So the 90s, I went into a chat room. Mind you, the 90s in Colombia, if you don't know that, you can Google it. It was really dangerous. But I went to the night, I went to a chat room, and I was like, let me get myself a boyfriend. So I got this kid who was 16 years old, and I was like, okay, I'm going to let you make out with me and touch my boob, and you have to pretend to be my boyfriend in front of my girlfriends. He was like, okay, we'll do it. So I got myself a boyfriend from the internet. But inside that room, I brought the anarchy that my grandma was able to instill in me, that feeling of being able to let go. Um, I feel like feeling, being seen means that you let your edges go. You know, I feel like sometimes, especially as a queer person or as a genderqueer person outside, your edges really stand out. You can feel your limits of yourself. And in her house, I let everything go. 10 years later, I am kicked out of my house because homophobia happens. Um, as I am growing and growing into bigger homosexual, uh, my, we moved into Miami, so I'm originally from Colombia, and then we moved to Miami, um, and my mom grows, grow, grows more and more into evangelical Christianity. Oh, I know, she was in, his Catholicism wasn't enough. She wanted more. <laughs> <laughs> Christ wasn't enough, you know? My mom is like hardcore. She's like, this is not enough. You know, it's like with drugs, but with, you know, Christianity. Now I'm thinking about it. Um, she's just really hardcore addict, but with Christianity. And so, you know, homophobia happened, and it was really, really, really bad. So I'm being kicked out of my house, and sadly, it's a very stereotypical image that I'm going to share with you all, okay? So forgive the stereotype. My mom is coming out of her room. She is holding a Bible. She is crying. She's like, homosexuality is not accepted in the Bible. I'm like, oh, girl, do we have to do the stereotype? Can you do something else? This is really boring. Um... So sadly, I get kicked out of my house in a very stereotypical way, and I and I do leave my house, and my entire family falls into evangelical Christianity, and they're all going to church, and it's a very culty evangelical church. Aside, it's all in my novel, so if you want to get it, um, March 2020, Fiebre <laughs> from the Feminist Press. Um, so it's evangelical Christianity to the next culty extreme and I'm being kicked out of my house um, and I'm getting all my aunts, I grab it at matriarchy, calling me in and being like, Nina, don't you see your mother is suffering? Don't you want to get a boyfriend? Look at me. I love my husband. I have a really good sex with my husband. Um, my aunt proceeds to tell me how much great sex she has with her husband. Uh, <laughs> um, and so eventually I get a call from my grandma who lives with us she's like Mimi I need to talk to you I'm like great another god slap in the face I was like let me prep myself for another heartbreak and you know I go into her room and she's sitting there and she you know closes her eyes and sighs deeply the way that my grandma does whenever she doesn't know how to deal with something really big she just closes her eyes and speaks with her eyes closed and she's like you know I know what's going on. And I'm like, great, I'm, a lost, I'm, I'm about to lose my grandmother too. She's like, I know what's going on. And I just wanna tell you that it is not my place to judge you. That only God can judge you. So come here, mama, give me a hug. That bitch never said gay, that bitch never said gender, that bitch never said any of that. 
But I carried that with me to this day inside me. There was something that was beyond language with my grandmother. There was something that had not to do with her articulating the way that I wanted to be seen through language. It was about gesture. It was about opening that space for me to be able to exist fully in that I cannot judge you. She didn't have to understand every single identity that I'm embodying. It was beyond that. It was a space where I could exist with compassion and kindness. And I carried that with me. Five years later, she said, hospice, she's going to die. And I'm here in San Francisco, and um, <clears throat> I sent her a video of me singing, Dos mujeres, un camino, dos mujeres compartiendo el mismo hombre, el mismo amor. And then I'm like, bitch. You better not pull my feet when you die. I want you to come into my dreams, but you better not pull my feet when you die. I love you. Thank you. Please welcome our last storyteller for the night, Donna, Donna Persona. Good evening, everyone. Okay, my story is going to tell a little bit about the effects that showing me, not showing me the way I want to be seen not being seen the way I saw myself, some of the effects that that had in my younger days, okay? Well, th throughout my life, but especially in my younger days, my story takes place long, 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 long ago, 60 years. And not too far away in San Jose, I was a skinny, poor, Mexican sissy boy. Born to a family, my father was a Baptist minister, my mother was the preacher's wife. They had 15 children. Some of them I had to be introduced to when they came over. That's a true story. But um, we were about... 12, 13 people at home. So, you know, my mother was very busy. We lived in a uh, white clapboard house, two-bedroom house, and there was, bed, there was beds in every room except, I think, the bathroom and the kitchen. They didn't work in there. But, uh, and in the living room, we had couches that made out into beds. And I don't know how this happened, but my sisters had uh, roll-away beds in the dining room, and then there was a boys' room with a bunch of uh, bunk beds. 
But uh, in our home, even though we were we was Pole and Mexican, we 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 had uh, a, a bookcase in the house, and I was thumbing through a book one day. It was a it was a book of medical conditions, and I came to this one page. On the one side was uh, a photograph of a black woman with an exposed breast, and she was suffering from cancer. On the other page was something about homosexuality. And I think it said things like uh, it's an anomaly, it's a neurological disease, and um, the, the best situation for people suffering from this is an uh, lobotomy or uh, an insane asylum. So I learned at that moment that uh, I can't share, I didn't know, there was no such thing as homosexuality from my neighborhood or I never heard anything. There was n- nothing, no references at all, and I knew no one. But I found out that I must never share these feelings that I was having to anyone because that, that would destroy life as I knew it. You know, my father is an important man, a minister. So I kept that inside. And, um, you know, my brothers, they were rough cut and they liked football and baseball and stealing bikes and stuff like that. So (laughs) I, I didn't hang out with them. I hung out with the girls, my sisters. And, you know, I did their hair. We talked about boys. They talked about boys. And, uh, you know, I, I learned that, you know, I, I was envious of that. Like, okay, I, I, can do, I can play with them. We can pick out clothes and do hair. But I mustn't talk about my feelings about boys because that would go back to the big fear that I had. I was in my own universe, and I had secrets and stories that I couldn't share with anybody so, uh, you know, my girls, they were regular, my sisters were regular girls, so they, they were always talking about boys. And I envied that so much. And so, you know, I was pretty smart. I, I figured out little ways to, to be a part of that. So one time, you know, in our home, we, in the basement that was relegated to the kids, with the kids' place, and we had a makeshift theater there. And one time... Uh, my sister was there with her boyfriend, and I caught them kissing. So then my sister, she's going to go upstairs and make white bread bologna sandwiches, I think mainly for her boyfriend. So she goes upstairs. While she was gone, I, I, went, I told her boyfriend, I said, wow, you're, you're so lucky. You know, you know how to do that. You know how to kiss girls. I don't know how to do that. Do you think you would show me how? And, you know, he said, well, hmm, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. Yeah, okay, come over here. So, you know, I took the, I took the bottom side and uh, put my hand in his curls. No, I didn't do that. But uh, he kissed me. And, uh, oh, it felt good. It felt good. And then... You know, he pulled away, and here comes my sister. And we had, we enjoyed uh, bologna sandwiches. (laughs) And, um, you know, because, yeah, did I, I didn't tell you, this is the mid-1950s. So um, he 
we just paid it off. You know, he, he straightened up and got with her and he never said anything and I never said anything and I got a kiss. Well, move on a little couple of years and I'm in junior high school, okay? A Spanish class. And the teacher at that time, you know, she, she gave me a stack of papers and she says, uh, give the papers out to the students, okay? So I, I was doing that and then I came up to uh, Gabriel Stranges's desk and he was an Italian guy and he too had black curly hair, beautiful blue eyes. And I go to give him his paper and he grabbed my hand and he said, oh, you have piano fingers. Well, I heard a whole concerto at that moment. <laughs> and I said, oh, oh, well, yeah, mm-hmm, okay. So I, I gave him a C minus paper. And uh, <clears throat> that night, you know, I was so like, oh my God, he, I love how this feels. He was holding my hand. I was having an interaction with a, a guy. I mean, that's what I'm here for. So uh, I did some research and I found his phone number. And so uh, that night, I go home, and uh, I call his number. And lo and behold, he answers. So in a breathy voice, high, higher pitch than my normal voice, I said, this is a call from your secret admirer. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I said, yes. <laughs> I, I've been watching you from afar. <laughs> How far? Across the street? No. <laughs> and, you know, I was just telling him things like, oh, I admire your, you know, your bubble button, your jeans, or whatever. No, you're, you're such a nice-looking guy, and you're, you seem fun, and I see you around. And I said, can, can, I, can I call you again? And he says, well, I, I guess so. So uh, the next night, I call him again. And, you know, we went through a similar thing the next night. Well, on the third night, I, I, he gets on the phone. He says, you're a weirdo. And, and he, he, don't ever call me again. And he hung up. And so anyway, that was the end of that. But for, for, for a while, for a few days, uh, I got to be seen you know, he could see me, he could hear me the way I wanted to be seen. So that was nice. I like that. So now we go forward a little bit, a couple of years, and now I'm in high school, okay? And uh, at that time, I was taking a public bus to get to high school. I went to Lincoln High School in San Jose. And so the bus um, leaves me off on First Street of San Jose, and I had my uh, transfer. I get off the bus, and I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for my bus to come. And uh, while I was waiting, I look over that way, and there's this man. And uh, he looked, to me, he looked like a movie star. James Dean, maybe. And uh, I, I, that's where I learned everything I knew about love. Doesn't everybody? You know, at the movies. And so, uh, he, you know, he was wearing a, a white T-shirt, and he, his body was filled, the t-shirt, the arms, and he was wearing khaki pants, and he had blonde hair, greasy, blue eyes. And uh, at that moment, I had this epiphany. I thought, that's everything that I want in life. And 
I'm never going to get that. That's not in the cards for me. And I, you know, I got sad. I thought, oh, shit. I mean, that, this is my life. This is what, 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 it, what it is. So I said, well, at least I'm just going to look at him and swoon as long as I can. So I did that. And I decided that I wasn't going to go to school that day. I had other things to learn that day. So I got on the bus that he got on. And, uh, you know, we, those days there was just one way to get in. I, I got in at the front of the bus, but I went all the way to the back of the bus. And uh, the whole ride, I was just looking at him and fantasizing and thinking about what I was never going to get in my life. And then at some point, you know, he gets off the bus and uh, he, he starts crossing the street and he was on his way to the Elks Club. That's what it was on Alma Street. And I, you know, my shoulders get sh- shrugged and I, I, I walk off and I'm going to go home now and try to find a way to explain to my mother why I was home from school early. So I'm walking away and then I hear, hey, hey. And uh, I turn around and there's this man. And he, he called me over. He came over to me. And, uh, you know, this is the part, like, this was the mid-50s. But I, I thought he, well, he, you know, he said, uh, I caught you looking at me. He says, uh, would you like to get to know me? Do you, should we get to know one another better? And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I'd like that. He says, okay. He says, I, I'm, I'm a cook over here at the Elks Club. Uh, why don't you meet me at my home? And it, it was the uh, Musty Halls Hotel in, in San Jose. He was living in a hotel. So I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll meet you there. So uh, he goes off to his work, and I'm walking home. And when I got home, uh, I don't remember what I told my mother, but uh, I, I took a long bath, and that was unusual unusual because those days we just took a bath once a week but I took a bath and and, uh, I I try to get as pretty as possible and all afternoon I I was thinking about this adventure that I was going to have and you know all my dreams are coming true and I'm I'm being seen the way I want to it was it was amazing to me so I I walk over I get over to his place and it was on second street close to where I had met him. And yes, it was a dingy hotel. And uh, so I, I knock on his door, and he, he, he lets me in. And he immediately led me to his bed. Well, a lot of hotels are that way. So we're sitting on the bed, and uh, you know we were getting to know each other a little bit. And uh, actually, he, you know, he, he had just gotten out of prison, this guy. And I found out that his name was Eddie Duncan. He was 25 years old. And I'm 15 years old. But, you know, uh, and I'm doing naughty things. But I was going to, I was okay with this because this is all that was offered to me. And I, I didn't know if it was ever going to happen for me again. So I stayed there. And, you know, he, he said, since we just met, we're not going to go all the way. Okay, good. I, I've never been there. I don't know where that is. <laughs> uh, so uh, 
I don't want to talk too dirty, so I'm not going to tell you how far we went. But we, we did go somewhere that night. And, um, and we stayed in that room. But uh, so he said, do you want to see me again? And I said, yes. So I, I went back again. I started going back. And um, what I noticed or what happened was we never left the hotel room. And, and, it, and it escalated. You know, we, we were doing more. And actually, you know, we went all the way, and, and I got in bed with him, having sex with him. And all of that was new to me, but uh, I don't know. I was willing to do it because uh, I didn't know if I was ever going to get the chance again. So um, he, uh, one, one, one night, he, he left to go buy some Lucky Strike cigarettes at the corner. So I was snooping around. And uh, I saw letters from jail there. And uh, I confronted him with it when he got back. And he said, oh, that, that was my uh, jailhouse wife. That, that was who was my lover in jail. Said, oh, really? And uh, so it was all starting to lose its nice feel for me. And the fact that, that he, he never took me anywhere. He never took me to Woolworth for ice cream soda. He never took me for a walk in the park. We never did anything except stay in that room. And, and so uh, it was getting lackluster for me, and I, I, I didn't like it anymore. And, but then at one point he says, you know, I, I want to go to Los Angeles, so uh, why don't you come with me? Why don't we go to Los Angeles together, and, and we'll have a wonderful life together. And uh, I don't know what I told him, but he, he didn't know where I lived. So I, I go home, and I decided that I'm, I'm not going to see him anymore at all. It's over. Because uh, even at that, you know, that long ago, I, I knew that I was kind of a diva. Like, you're not going to take me out anywhere? Uh, no, 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 this isn't working for me. And actually, like, he did say something like he, you know, after two weeks, you know, long, long relationship, he said, he said, I, I love you. I love you. And, uh, you know, I just looked up to him and said, thank you. Thank you for that. And then, you know, he, he said it again. I love you. And I said, thank you. And he said, uh, say it to me. Say it to me. And I said, you love me. <laughs> and, he, and he slapped me. He slapped me. So, you know, I wasn't used to that, even though being a dirty Mexican or whatever, I wasn't used to getting slapped. So um, uh, then I knew, okay, I, I, it, it, it's over. It's over. And actually another thing he said to me in, in those couple of weeks is he said, I want you to find other girls like you and have them teach you how to make love with me. And here I am, 15 years old, and he's, he's telling me to go out and do some research or something. So uh, I decided I'm, I'm never going to see him again. So I go home, and uh, he did have my phone number, so he, he would call. And every time he did, I would say, no, 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 I don't want to talk to him. So... Um, this goes on for a while, and I thought eventually he'll stop calling me and it'll all be over and, you know, I can go on with my life. 
And that's the end of that episode. Well, one time my older sister comes up to me and she says, hey, we have a problem here. There's some guy on the phone and he's saying that he's your old man and that you're his old lady and gets you on the phone. And uh, I said, what? Hang up on him. So she hung up on him and she says, look, I'm not going to tell mom and dad, but you take care of this. You straighten this out, okay? So I said, oh, okay, okay. Well, he, um, he never, he, he called a couple of more times, but eventually it, it all ended and uh, he, he never called again. And that was the end of that episode in my life. And, you know, my sister never told anybody. And so uh, I was saved from that. But, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I think about this like uh, he was 25. And so he couldn't take me out anywhere uh, because actually he was a pedophile. And, um, and um, he... In my mind, I'm thinking he wanted to get me away. I've learned a few things since then. You know, I was only 15. Uh, when somebody wants to uh, control you, they, they, they separate you from your support system. So, uh, and so he was wanting to get, I thought he was trying to get me away from my family. And so now I imagine that, that he probably was going to take me to L.A. and it's going to start like this. He'll have me have sex with his friends and then eventually pimp me out. And uh, the, the thing to go back to not being seen the way I see myself, I didn't see myself you know, this risky, doing these risky things, but I kept everything a secret. Uh, nobody knew him uh, until these phone calls but if I had run away, there would have been no way for my family to ever find me. So uh, that's the big effect of my not being able to share my feelings and, and to, to tell at least my sisters, I'm seeing this guy, blah, blah. So the moral of the story is be seen the way you see yourself. I, I think these days it's, it's a little nicer now. And, and, you know, people, maybe they don't have to go through what I did. Okay? That's it. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>